0: Hundreds of stories, documents, photos and videos published by people from all over Europe. This is My History, a collaborative project of the European Parliament, where history and the lives of European citizens coincide. Paul Collerwild was born in 1923 in Wissembourg, a small town in Alsace, France. Sandwiched between France and Germany, the Alsace region had changed hands several times between the two countries throughout history. Kollerwalt was a journalist who worked as Director-General for Information at the European Commission and at the European Parliament. In the 1980s, he was the head of the private office of European Parliament President Pierre Plumlin. Through his work, he was involved in the process of building the European Union. In the first of this two part series on Paul Collerwald, he told us about his younger years. Here, he tells us about his life after the Second World War.
1: I returned to Paris and made inquiries about resuming my dream of getting into Saint Cyr. The scout leader was very kind in his response to my letter. I've kept everything he sent me. And he said, I've asked around, but I'm afraid you're now too old to apply for Saint-Cyr. He said they could help me. I told him, since I'm in Zarebourg, I could go to university in Strasbourg. I quite like the humanities. Why don't I do philosophy or psychology? In France, that meant going to the Faculty of Arts. I was very lucky, really, because I was interested in those subjects. And so I did a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Strasbourg. Would you believe that the great French philosopher Paul Ricœur ran the History of Philosophy Institute there? I took all of his courses.
0: Saint-Cyr was no longer an option for Kohlwald, but he was to discover a new passion –
2: Journalism.
1: I stayed in Strasbourg throughout my studies. As my parents' home had been destroyed, I didn't want to be an added burden, so I told them, I'll figure something out. A friend of mine mentioned that the Catholic newspaper Le Nouvel Alsacien was looking for freelancers. I said, I'll give it a shot, and we'll soon find out whether I'm any good at writing. That's when my writing career began. Le Nouvel Alsacien was a Catholic paper run by Father Metz. He said to me, so far, so good. Do you have any other plans? I told him, no, I don't. If you think I can bring something to the table, why not hire me for two years? At the same time, I began working towards getting my press card. So we added another year and then I got official confirmation from Paris. And I still have it, actually. That I was a professional journalist. A professional journalist. After that, I did a fair bit of reporting in Morocco and all over the place, really.
0: The Council of Europe's Committee of Ministers met for the first time from the 8th to the 13th of August 1949 in Strasbourg's City Hall. It was there that Paul Collowald had his first encounter with Europe. His job as a journalist meant that he was able to get to know one of the founding fathers of the European Union, Robert Schumann.
1: When the Council of Europe began in Strasbourg in August, I was asked, and I was surprised they asked me as I was just starting out, to write a five or six-page biography of Robert Schumann. That was when I met Robert Schumann. I had his biography tucked under my arm when I ran into him at the Catholic students' residence. He invited me to go with him to the prefecture, and there he joked, I'll sign it for you, but I need to check it out first. He had a cheeky manner about him. After that, we got to know each other well. I interviewed him. He gave me a few exclusives for periodicals in Alsace. In one of them, called Ritme, we once had five columns across the front page. Robert Schumann, by Paul Colowald
2: uh, uh, <laughs>
0: Paul Kollerwald also remembers the first post-war elections in Germany when he was a young journalist. Federal elections took place on Sunday, the 14th of August, 1949 to elect the 400 representatives who would make up the first Bundestag
1: We followed the results. I was a bit apprehensive because we didn't know what would happen at the ballot box. But we were relieved when we saw that Adenauer would be Chancellor, and then by the alliances that were formed with the Socialists and the Liberals. It was a coalition, but a strong one, and the heads of government, the successive presidents of France and Germany, made for a formidable pair.
0: In the 1980s, the importance of the alliance between France and Germany was brought home to him by Bernard Clépier, former head of Schumann's private office.
1: When we met close to the beach on the Côte d'Azur during his holiday in 1983, Bernard Clépier, who incidentally played a very significant role in the Monet-Schumann tandem, said to me, and I actually wrote it down so as not to forget it. Believe me, whenever there's an important, technically complex, but well-thought-out matter, and Bonn, because we weren't in Berlin at that point, and Paris have a strong political will to work towards concrete European objectives, then Europe advances, and our partners don't really put up much resistance. That's wonderful, isn't it?
0: While working at Le Nouvel Alsacien, Paul Colerwald witnessed the Schuman Declaration. On the 9th of May 1950, France's Foreign Affairs Minister put forward a proposal to establish a European Coal and Steel Community, the ECSC, in which member countries would pool their production. Five years after the Second World War came to an end, European countries were still struggling to overcome the destruction wrought by the conflict. Determined to prevent any similarly tragic wars from ever occurring, governments hoped that pooling coal and steel production would, in Robert Schumann's words, make war between historic rivals France and Germany not merely unthinkable, but materially impossible. Schumann's goal was to prevent a new conflict from breaking out. Il s'interrogeait, uh,
1: in their talks, they said, after the war, we don't want to go back to the same cycle, with Hitler, another war, and so on. Can we come up with a European solution? As I had a good memory and was the youngest at Le Nouvel Alsacien, I was the one who went into the little store cupboard where the France Presse Agency's teleprinter would be on the go all day. I went there to check on it, had a look, and then a news flash came in from Paris, which said that Schumann, the Foreign Affairs Minister, had announced a press conference, and I thought, oh really? I said to my editor-in-chief, Alphonse Irjud, listen, something's definitely happening here. Often with the teleprinter, first there'd be an alert, then the title and the transcript would arrive gradually, typed up by the France Presse journalist in the room as the speech was delivered at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Paris. By the end of it, we had practically the first 30 lines of the Schumann Declaration lying on our teleprinter, talking about peace and other things. I turned to my editor-in-chief and said, It can't be. This is precisely the solution Schuman was searching for. So I experienced the 9th of May vicariously, wondering what would happen. And here was the solution, and it was terrific absolutely terrific.
2: Voilà C'est formidable.
0: Formidable. Paul Collwald believes that the founding fathers saw the ECSC as just the beginning of something far bigger.
1: It was the ECSC, coal and steel. But Jean Monnet had already thought about what would come next, and that was politics. His vision became the treaty establishing the European defence community, which is pretty political, don't you think? But alas, what became of the European defence community, the EDC? My dear General de Gaulle, who certainly had his good points, joined forces with the communists in the French parliament, and they voted down plans for this defence community. And that was that. After that, there were talks to tentatively resume some projects.
2: projects, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh,
0: After Le Nouvel Alsacien, the young journalist found himself at France's most prestigious newspaper,
2: Le Monde.
1: At one point, Le Monde's Strasbourg correspondent got a job at the ECSC Council and left. He said to me, look, if you want to take over as Le Monde correspondent, I'll put in a good word. And they said to me, listen, if your colleague says you're good enough, we'll give you a try. And that's how I ended up as Le Monde correspondent from
2: 1952
0: to 1958.
2: After six years at Le Monde, Europe beckoned.
1: And this, as fate would have it, is what led me to my European career. When the high authority was set up in Luxembourg, Jacques Rabier, who was in charge of the press service, gave me a call and said, We've never met, but I know who you are. I've been reading your articles in Le Monde for quite a while. Could we set up a meeting in Strasbourg? So he came to Strasbourg and he said to me, You're really very good. I have to set up the ECSC's entire press service from scratch, and you fit the bill in almost every way. In two or three weeks' time, we'll be publishing a vacancy in the official journal. So there you have it. I was recruited, and that's where my European career started. I didn't stay in Luxembourg for very long. There were interinstitutional meetings since by then we had the ECSC, Euratom, and the Common Market under the Hallstein Commission. This is where Robert Marjolin comes in, because he was Commission vice-president at the time, and since Jacques Rabier had worked with Jean Monnet and things between Marjolin and Monnet were a bit... Anyway, so Marjolin rang Jacques Rabier to tell him that Halstein had just hired the young Joachim von Stülpnagel and that he was going to need a spokesperson too. So they said to him, what about Paul Kollewald? Ah, the one who used to write for Le Monde? Yes, ask him if he'd be interested in leaving Luxembourg. That's how I joined the team. Halstein's first spokesperson team, headed by an Italian diplomat, Giorgio Smokina, so I split the work with him. Then a Belgian man and another Italian were hired, and little by little, the spokesperson team grew.
0: Throughout this time, Paul Kollerwald stayed in touch with Robert
2: Schumann.
1: We kept in touch for a long time. The last letter I got from him was when he left the Ministry of Justice after a brief stint as Minister of Justice. That was his last letter. I've got it in my files. He didn't have my home address, so the letter was addressed to Paul Kolovald, Le Nouvel Alsacien, Strasbourg. I've still got the envelope, which had a business card inside from the Ministry, and a note in which he thanked me for the documents I'd sent. Since we'd always stayed in touch, I knew what would interest him, and wrote... My staff can't keep on top of absolutely everything, so if you see anything interesting, please send it my way. That was the last thing Schumann ever wrote to me.
2: In
0: 2021, the Vatican accorded Schumann, the former French foreign affairs minister who had helped found the first European community, venerable status. In conferring him this title, Pope Francis put Schumann on the long path towards possible sainthood. Paul Collewald, however, is not in favour of the move.
1: When he'd travel on foreign affairs ministry business, he'd ask me to find him the nearest church so he could go to Mass in the morning. But we needed to be careful because there was one thing that was very important to him. I remember him saying... I'm a Catholic foreign affairs minister, but I'm not here to pursue Christian policies. It was really important to him to make that clear, you see. It's a delicate matter, I can tell you. First of all, it was his staff who started this initiative. Schumann would have never offered himself up to the church. And as I said a moment ago, he saw himself as a Catholic foreign affairs minister, but he was not there to pursue Christian policies. So there you go. My personal view is that not only would he never have asked for it, but I'm sure that he would never have wanted it, knowing that, and I'm speaking only for myself here, if we make a saint out of Schumann, alongside de Gasperi and Adenauer, the other two post-war Catholic figures, I think we diminish his role and his influence. It's alienating for Europeans who aren't religious. Me too. I'm not interested in saints and all that stuff. He fought for peace, and I want peace. So, I believe that it could be dangerous for Schumann's influence, his standing. I'd rather he wasn't idolized as a saint. It's a bit of a paradox. I don't know. None of them are around anymore, and perhaps he wouldn't like what I'm saying, but this is how I feel about it. <laughs>
0: been listening to the second episode on Paul Collarwald, based on an interview by Walter Maverick, Director General of Translation at the European Parliament. This was My History, a project of the European Parliament in collaboration with citizens from all over Europe. If you're interested in more podcasts from the European Parliament, then look online for Europal Audio, or go to the portal of My House of European History.